Welcome to the second series of the Cutting Edge Issues podcast from the Department of International Development at the LSE. These podcasts are recordings from the Cutting Edge Issues in Development, Thinking and Practice lecture series for the academic year 2021-2022. This series of guest lectures is coordinated by me, Duncan Green, Professor in Practice in the Department, and the Professor of Development Studies, James Putzel. Each week in the Cutting Edge series, Renowned guest lecturers share their expertise and spark discussion on an exciting range of issues, from the battle over COVID vaccines with Jayati Ghosh, to what's wrong with aid with Claire Short, to the political economy of Parasite, the Oscar-winning movie with Harjun Chang. Since 2020, the series has taken place online, enabling us to host fantastic speakers from around the world and to stream the lectures via this podcast and on YouTube, opening them up to a global audience. I hope you enjoy the lecture. Welcome, everybody, to the second in the Cutting Edge series from Development Thinking and Practice. Uh, I have great pleasure tonight um, to welcome our two speakers, uh, Hajin Chang and Francisco Ferrara, and I'll come back to introduce them properly in a moment. Welcome, Hajun Chang, back to the LSE. We always like to have you. Hajun is professor in the Faculty of Economics at the University of Cambridge where he teaches development economics. In addition to numerous journal articles and book chapters, he's published 16 books. The main ones are The Political Economy of Industrial Policy, Kicking Away the Ladder, Bad Samaritans, 23 Things They Don't Tell You About Capitalism, and Economics, The User's Guide. His writings have been translated and published in 42 languages in 44 countries. I still remember back in 2005 on my first trip to Kigali in Rwanda, I went into a little grocery store and they had just a small rack of books. And on it, I saw his book, Kicking Away the Ladder, and promptly took a photograph to send it back to him to say he was having some impact in far-flung places. Worldwide, his books have sold over 2 million copies. He's the winner of the 2003 Gunnar Myrdal Prize and the 2005 Vasily Leontiev Prize. Hajun is a huge contributor to thinking and theorizing about development, but he's also um, probably one of the most prominent public figures uh, educating the wider public about development. So it's a pleasure, Hajun, to have you come to speak to us about the political economy of Parasite, the movie. And we're equally lucky to have our own Francisco Ferreira here as a discussant. Francisco is the Amartya Sen Professor of Inequality Studies and Director of the International Inequalities Institute here at the LSC. I told him uh, I, I think he has his work cut out for him as inequality seems to grow and grow. Francisco works on the measurement, causes, and consequences of inequality and poverty with an emphasis on developing countries in general and Latin America in particular. His research has been published widely and awarded a number of prizes. He's also a research fellow at ISA and Bonn and an affiliated scholar with the Stone Center on Socioeconomic Inequality at the City University of New York. He currently serves as vice president of the Latin American and Caribbean Economic Association. He was born and raised in Sao Paulo, 
great place in Brazil and holds a PhD in economics from the LSC. So welcome, Francisco. We're really delighted you could join us. So now, without further ado, Hajun, I turn the floor over to you. Thank you, James, uh, for that generous introduction. Thank you for inviting me again uh, to the Cutting Edge series. It's uh, just uh, a wonderful event, uh, being able to talk to so many the bright young students uh, and, and uh, the eminent faculty. Yeah, it's uh, a bit of a shame uh, that, that we are still doing this uh, on screen, but uh, hopefully that uh, in the future I should uh, be able to do it uh, in person. So today I'm uh, going to talk about uh, the political economy of Parasite, the movie. Well, sometimes uh, that uh, people have uh, sent around uh, the news uh, about this talk uh, without the movie. So a friend of mine in Korea sent me an email saying, when did you get into the, the, the pathology, the, the political <laughs> economy parasite? Are you talk, going to talk about malaria? And I said, no, 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 it's about the movie. So the let me uh, begin. Uh, the, the movie Parasite is the first ever foreign language movie to be awarded the Academy Award uh, in the United States, and it has uh, caused uh, quite a stir. It's a very, very accomplished uh, piece of work, uniquely mixing social commentary with comedy and also horror. I hope uh, most of you have uh, watched this movie before coming to this, but uh, I hope uh, all of you will watch it maybe more than once at, uh, after my talk, because that, that, that once you understand uh, the context behind it, you will appreciate the movie even more. You know, this movie is uh, set in Korea, South Korea, uh, official title Republic of Korea, which is my native country. And it is a country that has gone from being one of the poorest in the world to one of the richest within really less than a person's lifetime. So back in 1961, on the eve of uh, the country's uh, the the start of the country's uh, economic development drive, which uh, started with five-year development plan in 1962, South Korea's per capita income was $93. Okay, it wasn't as poor as uh, some countries like Nepal and Haiti, but its uh, income was basically at the same level with other major developing economies like India, Kenya, and Nigeria. All the Latin American countries were richer than uh, Korea, some of them way richer. I think in that year, Argentina's uh, pocket tank was something like uh, $400. Many African countries were considerably richer. You know, Ghana had a uh, pocket income twice, more than twice bigger. Senegal had uh, the income that was almost at uh, three and a half times. So it was one of the poorest countries in the world at the time. Today is uh, one of the richest countries with per capita income of about uh, 31,000 in 2019. It is just under 10% uh, below the EU average and uh, considerably richer than the poorer Western European uh, countries. And we are not talking about uh, the new Eastern European the, the members of the EU, you know, richer than Spain, richer than Portugal, richer than Greece. 
Now, this means that there are around 8 million Koreans who remember living like every, uh, living like an average Nigerian or Indian of the early 60s, not even of today, who now live like an average EU citizen. I say 8 million because this is the number of Koreans who are over 65 today. So that those who were born before 1955, I mean, I that, that accept uh, uh, adopted this uh, cut of line because few people remember much about what happened before they had uh, uh, five or six. So I'm excluding those who were alive in 1961. I wasn't, I was born in 63, but uh, were under five. Eh? So there are, there are 8 million people who literally can remember living like a Nigerian or an Indian in the early 60s who are now living like an average EU citizen. This is a remarkable achievement, but even more remarkable is the fact that this uh, the increase in income was achieved on the basis of a radical transformation of the country's production structure and capabilities. You now there are countries that have become rich suddenly because they find oil, found oil. But uh, in the case of Korea, it was based on a fundamental transformation of the product, productive structure and capabilities. So in the early 60s, the main export items of Korea was primary commodities, tungsten oil, rice, fish. Even until the mid 90s, uh, mid 80s, after more than two decades of so-called miracle economic growth, the country's main exports were still the labor-intensive products like textile, stitched garments, trainers, and stuffed toys, although by this time it uh, started exporting more high-tech products like uh, steel and electronics and automobile, but uh, they were not uh, so prominent. Of course, today's uh, main exports uh, include sophisticated manufacturing products like semiconductors, mobile phones, and automobiles. And I think uh, the best way to kind of uh, present the magnitude of the structural transformation that uh, went on in the country is uh, to talk about the Korean car manufacturer Hyundai. Now, the Hyundai business group was uh, founded in the late 1940s his main business was uh, basically construction. But from the 60s, it uh, wanted to diversify into higher productivity uh, activities. So one of the things that it did was to form a joint venture with Ford, the American car company, to manufacture cars. Now, manufacture, I think, is uh, a bit of an uh, overstatement there because uh, at the time, what they basically did was uh, to import this uh, semi-knockdown kit uh, from uh, America and put them together with uh, minimal, although not uh, the, the, no, uh, use of uh, domestic, uh, domestically sourced parts and uh, selling those assembled cars uh, to the Korean market. The model was called Cortina and they produced uh, not even uh, 3,000 cars per year. And they continued that for a few years 
But then the, in the 1973, the Korean government uh, made the announcement saying that all the car companies will have their the license canceled if they don't come up with a local locally designed car model. And at the time, there were like uh, three or four uh, automobile manufacturers all joined venture uh, with uh, some foreign company. Most of them left uh, the General Motors uh, stuck around with this uh, Korean partner. But uh, the, the Ford uh, Hyundai's partner left uh, the thinking uh, this is a ridiculous idea. But uh, somehow Hyundai uh, the produced a local model called Pony. There's a very basic car, more of a kind of four wheels and an ashtray kind of kind of a thing. And uh, started uh, producing it from 1976, where they started in very late 1975. But uh, in the first uh, full year of production, they produced uh, just over 10,000 pony cars. Yeah, 10,000 is uh, that, uh, a lot more than 3,000 they used to produce uh, with uh, Cortina. But in the same year, to give you the perspective, General Motors produced 4.8 million cars and Ford produced 1.9 million cars. So just think about it. If you had a time machine and went back to 1976 and told people that, oh, there's this uh, totally unknown car maker in Korea, well, really more than, little more than a glorified uh, car mechanic shop, which has a currently production run that is 0.2% uh, of General Motors and 0.5% of Ford. But in just over 30 years, this company will be bigger than Ford. And in less than 40 years, it will be bigger than General Motors. They, people uh, from 1976 would have uh, tried to put you in a mental institution. But this is exactly what happened. As from 2009, Hyundai produced uh, more cars than Ford, and uh, it uh, overtook uh, General Motors in 2015. So this is the kind of transformation of uh, productive structure and capabilities that we are talking about. You know, from one of the poorest countries almost totally dependent on the export of uh, primary commodities, jumping uh, to be one of the richest countries, you know, overtaking uh, some of the greatest companies in the, the history of capitalism, like uh, General Motors and Ford. And not just in automobile, but in semiconductor, in the, the electronics, everywhere. Yeah? You know, another the, the amusing story is that the Korean the, the, the company LG, the, the king of uh, the display market, started out as a, the lowest grade subcontractor for RCA, the American company that almost single-handedly invented the color TV. But uh, when RCA went bankrupt somewhere in the mid 2000s, I think a big chunk of it was uh, bought by LG. Yeah? So it's a bit like, I don't know, that, that in some 
speak uh, latifundia in the, the uh, Argentina or Chile, you know, the lowest the, the campesino, 30 years later turns up and uh, buys uh, half of the farm because the, the, the farm but, uh, was not managed very well. Anyway, what is uh, that, uh, also very impressive is that uh, the benefits of this uh, rapid economic growth and development were rather evenly distributed. You know, during the so-called miracle growth period between the 1960s and mid-1990s, Korea remained one of the most equal countries in the developing world, where it belonged at the time, although it was still quite unequal by the standard of the rich countries. Moreover, despite rapid industrialization and rapid uh, structural transformation, which often causes that uh, greater inequality, income inequality actually stay the same or maybe slightly increase depending on which data you look at between the, the mid 60s and mid 80s. And inequality even fell for about a decade between mid 1980s and mid 1990s. So, you know, that, that when I was a student, uh, especially the World Bank, uh, the, used to talk about the growth with equity, you know, this was the, the, the prime example of uh, that. Yeah. So all in all, Korea's achievement over the last uh, six years has been remarkable, but unfortunately things have gone terribly wrong with the country these days. The most uh, damning indication is that the country has one of the 10 highest suicide rates in the world. Within the rich world, in the OECD, actually it used to have the highest suicide rate by far until 2015. I mean, it joined the OECD in the 1990, five, uh, maybe 96, uh, thereabout. So between that and uh, 2015, it had suicide rate that is, depending on the year, two and a half, sometimes three times higher than the OECD average. In 2015, and 15, Lithuania joined the OECD and it has even higher suicide rate than uh, Korea. So Korea was uh, knocked off the, the throne. Well, throne, uh, yeah. Unfortunately, Koreans never do things by half. They have to be number one in everything they do. So good things, but also bad things like suicide. Huh? Suicide is particularly high among older people over 50. So for this uh, age group, the average suicide rate uh, could be something like four times higher than the OECD average of the same age group. While the old are killing themselves in droves, the young are in despair. The young call their country Hell Joseon. Joseon is uh, the name of the 
country under the last uh, dynasty. And it is actually the name still preferred uh, by North Korea. So hell Joseon means yeah, hell that is Korea, Korea that is hell. According to some opinion surveys, half of the younger people, like at, uh, between the, the 20 and the 40, say they want to migrate to another country if they have a chance. The cultural world is that uh, brimming with books and dramas aimed at young people, telling them that it is okay not to be okay. Yeah? Now, this is the most worrying thing that uh, people are encouraged to embrace uh, the unhappiness. Yeah? Because there's no way that uh, they can uh, become happy, at least by the standard uh, uh, measures. Eh? Young people have uh, stopped having children. In 2018, Korea had a fertility rate of uh, 0.98. Once again, number one at, uh, from the, the bottom by some but, uh, significant margin. I think uh, in uh, 2019, it uh, went down even further to something like 0.85. So that there's a uh, huge uh, crisis there. I mean, falling fertility itself is uh, one thing, but that, uh, you know, the reason is behind this uh, fertility that, uh, decline is that the worrying thing, you know, that people just don't see the hope uh, for the future. And it is uh, that this new Korea, if you like, not the Korea of uh, miracle growth, that is depicted in the movie Parasite. Well, the most important theme of this movie is, of course, uh, inequality, as many of you know. And inequality is a very common theme in movies from around the world. You know, that these are some of my favorite uh, movies about uh, inequality, you know, City of God, the Brazilian movie, Roma, the Mexican one, I, Daniel Blake, uh, the British one. But the story of Parasite is a very Korean story of inequality. And I'll explain that uh, why I say that in due course. Korea is uh, currently one of the most unequal countries in the rich world. Only the United States is uh, consistently more unequal than uh, Korea among countries with more than $30,000 per capita income. Sometimes uh, Korea is uh, knocked off of, uh, from its uh, second place by United Kingdom, sometimes by the Israel, occasionally by New Zealand, but uh, basically it's uh, one of the four least uh, equal countries in the rich world. The important thing that, uh, here is that this uh, high inequality is actually quite a recent phenomenon. Of course, uh, there was a high inequality in Korea during the feudal period, during the Japanese colonial rule, but uh, on the eve of the economic miracle in the early 60s, the country actually had quite that uh, equal uh, income distribution, once again, by the standard of the developing countries, because there were a lot of upheavals in the country. So the Japanese colonial rule, although it created 
a certain uh, class of uh, the rich people who are associated with the Japanese and then heightened inequality. You know, when the, the colonial rule ended, uh, a lot of these people lost their wealth. And then there was the war effort uh, the, during the Second World War, during which uh, the, the Japanese uh, squeezed everyone. And then there was the Korean War, which uh, the, the destroyed a lot of uh, the uh, facilities. You know, the, a lot of factories were destroyed, for example. And then that, that there was also the significant land reform in the late 1940s and early 1950s, which created that uh, quite that uh, unequal society. And I said earlier, inequality didn't rise during the miracle years. If it rose, it was at, uh, very little. And there was a significant uh, fall for about a decade between the mid 80s and mid 90s. But this uh, began to change uh, from the mid 90s. Now, in order to understand this change, uh, you need to understand how Korea kept its inequality low, unlike the rich nations, other rich nations, I should put. Korea didn't keep inequality low by redistributing income through tax and transfer system or the welfare state, if you will. The welfare state in Korea was uh, negligible until the 1980s and was very small even in the 1990s. The welfare state uh, measured by social spending as defined by the OECD as a proportion of GDP was a mere 2.7% in 1990 and 3.1% of uh, GDP in 1995. You know, to put uh, things into perspective, Today, uh, even the US, uh, which is supposed to have a small welfare state, spends about 18.7% of GDP on social spending. OECD averages uh, 20%, so 3% uh, the spending is uh, the minuscule. However, the Korea kept uh, its inequality low by restraining the ability of the market to generate inequality in the first place. So there were the protection for small farms. So land, after the land reform, there was a very strict ceiling on agricultural land ownership. I think because the country had very high population, has a very high population density, the ceiling was something ridiculously small, like one hectare, which is basically a handkerchief size. And farmers were given the protection that from uh, foreign agriculture import, import of rice was banned altogether. You know, the import of other agricultural products were uh, very strictly controlled. So the small farmers that uh, had uh, the, the space uh, to survive, there were very strong uh, protection of small shops. Basically, the, the if you wanted uh, to open a large retail space, uh, you are denied the license. 
So the countries are full of uh, what we call kumonkage, uh, which means literally means uh, hole in the wall shops. So they look like this. I mean, tiny shop selling everything from cigarette uh, to energy drink uh, to milk uh, to the, the snacks to you know the, the alcohol. Yeah, the, the, the funny thing is that uh, these uh, small shops are often called super or super short for supermarkets. So actually the <laughs> supermarkets are super small markets in the Korea and uh, the large uh, the supermarkets that are spreading around the country these days are calling themselves marts because that, that if you call yourself a super or supermarket, it means that you are tiny. So that's uh, the uh, Korean cultural core. Small firms, uh, of course, uh, in general, the large firms owned by these uh, big conglomerates uh, like Hyundai and Samsung and LG were favored by the government, but uh, it also uh, provided that, that these uh, spaces in which uh, small firms uh, that can survive. So the government uh, until 1997 had this uh, the, the law, uh, which was uh, the, basically the list of uh, industries reserved uh, for small and medium-sized enterprises. And these were basically the, the low-tech industries. Uh, so if you're a large company, you couldn't make tofu, for example. You couldn't uh, mill rice, you know, because uh, that these were all uh, considered uh, jobs for small companies. Workers were, of course, uh, brutally exploited and uh, maltreated, but uh, uh, even so, there was some protection against uh, the firing, actually, at least uh, in legal terms, uh, firing was uh, not uh, easy. Also, the agency workers uh, the, were the highly restricted. So, you know, companies couldn't that, that, that use that, that many uh, outsourced uh, agency workers. Also, there was a uh, practice of uh, lifetime employment for regular workers in large companies, not as uh, widespread or the, strict as in Japan, but uh, you know, if you are working for one of these uh, big companies, you could expect that uh, lifetime employment. There was uh, at the other end of uh, the spectrum, there were the, was uh, financial repression in the sense that there's a ban or strong restrictions on speculative finance, which limited the possibilities of uh, large uh, earnings. There were cultural caps on top salaries. So, you know, even the top executives of the largest companies probably were not uh, getting, excuse me, <clears throat> more than that uh, one or $2 million. So in this way, that it kept, I mean, in technical terms, uh, market uh, distribution, very equal. And even today, even these days, uh, South Korea is uh, the, the second most equal country in terms of uh, the distribution of market income. Actually, it used to be the most equal country in terms of uh, market income distribution. 
that is uh, income before tax and transfer, but that uh, for reasons I'll explain that uh, in a few minutes, it uh, has that uh, it's a market income distribution has uh, become more unequal. And it uh, considered that uh, recently that uh, the space uh, uh, to Switzerland, which actually has uh, all many of these uh, the protections uh, for the week uh, that uh, I'm uh, talking about uh, in the, the Korean context. The trouble is uh, it may have a quite equal distribution of market income, but there's hardly any distribution going on. Uh, sorry, redistribution going on, so that it ends up being very unequal after that the, the you do the tax and redistribution. Now, in the miracle years, the combination of uh, this uh, the, the protection of the weak, restraint of the strong was uh, the crucially supplemented by, <clears throat> excuse me, by the, the extended uh, family network. Yeah, no, let me that, that, that phrase it again. That, that I need to that, that bring in more stuff here. So the, it had the, the restraints on market forces, but very little the, the, the welfare state. But during the miracle years, uh, that this uh, wasn't causing a huge problem because on the one hand, that uh, you had rapid economic growth and creation of uh, the, a lot of jobs and uh, increasingly better jobs. So the people were, quite uh, the protected uh, from the, the shocks of uh, unemployment. At the same time, you still had uh, this uh, traditional uh, extended family network, which uh, would uh, support you in times of difficulty. So you, I don't know, uh, felt sick uh, and uh, maybe your brother will uh, pay for your children's uh, tuition while you cannot work at, uh, during your illness. Yeah? Maybe you uh, get un unemployed and uh, can't quite find a job quickly. Maybe your uncle will uh, support you for a couple of months. So with the help of a rapidly growing economy and uh, extended family network, people could uh, protect themselves uh, from uh, shocks of life, uh, unemployment, illness, uh, the retirement, and what have you which the welfare state uh, protect you against. So that during the miracle years that uh, people had uh, quite uh, a hopeful outlook, yeah? life was tough, you know, it had the longest working hours in the world during those days, uh, 55, even the six, 60 hours uh, per week. Of course, that, that this is nothing compared to what the British workers were putting in the other European workers were putting in during the Industrial Revolution. During the Industrial Revolution, the British factory workers uh, typically work uh, for 80 hours a week. Some of them work 100 hours, but uh, still, I mean, the, the, in the, by the standard of the, mid, uh, the 20th century, 
Korea had really long working hours. You know, the, there was a lot of violence at the workplace. You know, the, the foreman will hit you, kick you, you know, harass you. But uh, people had hope that, uh, you know, life was uh, getting better all the time for most people. You know, that if something goes wrong, uh, there'll be the extended family to take care of you. And this that, 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 that sense of hope is reflected in suicide statistics. And I told you that uh, since the uh, mid 1990s, uh, Korea's uh, suicide rate was uh, 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 by far the highest uh, in the OECD, but that uh, just before it shot up uh, in the mid 1990s, it actually had a suicide rate that was uh, below the OECD average. Eh? So something fundamentally changed uh, in the mid to late 1990s. And that is basically the, this uh, wave of uh, deregulation that, that uh, came in the 1990s. So in 1993, the country's first fully civilian government comes to power uh, the fully civilian government in 32 years comes to power and it starts uh, implementing liberalization measures, eh? especially in the financial sector, the agricultural sector, and the labor market. The main force driving these uh, liberalization measures were the chapters, uh, the large conglomerates, they wanted to break away from the restraints put on them by the state. Of course, that uh, they grew up on the state support, you know, the, the generous financing and uh, the granting of monopoly rights and what have you. But that, uh, now that uh, they that, that could, well, they thought they could uh, stand on their own feet, they uh, didn't want the restrictions uh, put on to them by the state. They wanted to expand into areas that were kept away from them, especially the retail sector. And they wanted the government to deregulate the labor market so that they can be more free in using the workers. And this push for liberalization by the chapters was uh, actually helped by the fact that most people at the time associated interventionist uh, government policies with military dictatorship, because that's what the military dictatorship did and thought that political liberalization also required economic liberalization. So there was a widespread uh, support for these measures. This uh, liberalization trend uh, vastly accelerated with the 1997 financial crisis. You know, never mind the fact that the 97 uh, crisis was uh, mainly caused by, prim uh, by the premature and poorly designed financial liberalization measures of the mid 1990s. Whatever the cause was uh, following the crisis, the US and other rich countries used the IMF risk program that uh, Korea was subject to as a lever to open up the uh, open up and liberalize uh, Korean markets, especially the financial market. Many chapters that uh, went uh, bankrupt during the crisis, but those who survived continued with their pressure on the government 
so that they could uh, expand their business in areas like uh, retail and that uh, further deregulate uh, the labor market. They also largely did away with the lifetime employment practice using the crisis as an excuse while ditching the old kind of uh, implicit norm on the top salaries. So now that uh, you have uh, Korean uh, CEOs that are being paid uh, 60, 70 million dollars, unlike uh, in the old days. You know? And you know, somewhat unexpected political alliance during this period, former left-wing activists joined forces with the internationalized upper professional class financiers, lawyers, and accountants to campaign for further liberalization of the financial market as they saw this as the most effective way to restrain the power of the chevers by inviting foreign capital. And one of the results of these uh, neoliberal reforms is the intensification of the inequality problem as uh, depicted in the, the movie Parasite. Now, I need to explain how this has exactly happened. So first of all, the neoliberal policies brought about slow growth. Now, some of you might think uh, this is strange because you know, that isn't uh, neoliberalism uh, supposed to be a doctrine of uh, growth machismo? Unfortunately, the reality is that neoliberalism is that, uh, not good for economic growth. It discourages economic growth as uh, it uh, uh, creates an excessively liquid financial market that discourages uh, long-term oriented investment. Heightened inequality that uh, it creates also reduces investment and growth by increasing political instability and depressing demand. You know, this is why during the so-called uh, the neoliberal period since the 1980s, the world economy has grown at barely over half the speed that used to between the 1950s and the 70s. So between the, the, the 1950s and the 70s, the world economy was uh, growing at the, the 2.6% per year in per capita terms. Since then, it has been growing at 1.5%. In the Korean case too, the economy grew much more slowly after the neoliberal reform, but during the miracle years, it was growing at 6% per year. Since then, it has been struggling to grow even at 3%, I'm, I'm talking in per capita terms. Slow growth meant a much more slow creation of employment. And this has resulted in higher youth unemployment, but also early redundancy of older workers in their early 50s or even late 40s. And when they became redundant, these older workers could not rely on the welfare state because the welfare state was uh, very small. So they couldn't be like, I don't know, workers in Scandinavia who could uh, rely on the welfare state to finance their retraining and find a new and hopefully better job. At the same time, rapid industrialization, urbanization had uh, brought about the disintegration of the traditional extended family, which used to act as a quasi-welfare state. In the meantime, the welfare state uh, has uh, grown very slowly. You know, despite a substantial growth that, that, uh, in the last uh, decade or so, 
the Korean welfare state is uh, still the smallest in the rich world. You know, the, in the OECD, there are a few countries which has smaller welfare state than Korea, but uh, these are countries that uh, all have an uh, income that is half, one third, or even less than uh, that of Korea's. So among the rich countries, it has uh, the smallest welfare state. I'm not going to go into the figure. So the only option left to them is to use their severance payments to set up their own businesses. As a result, you know, despite the rapid industrialization and expansion of the large firms, there's a very high self-employment rate in Korea. It's still nearly 25%. EU average is 15. You know, it's at uh, only 10% in Japan. In the US, uh, it's 6%. You know, that's uh, quite interesting because uh, Americans uh, think they are all entrepreneurs, but it's uh, actually the least entrepreneurial country in the world. Yeah? The least uh, proportion of uh, people are actually their own bosses in the US, in the world. Yeah? And many of these uh, self-employed people are concentrated in the small restaurants and bars which people who have been to Korea must have recognized uh, to be so numerous. Like that uh, about 10 years ago, I uh, remember seeing this article saying that Korea has the largest number of fried chicken shops per capita in the world, despite being barely in the top 10 of chicken consumption per capita. So these are the small bars, uh, restaurants that uh, dot the, the streets, People are flocking to, to these sectors because restraints on market forces still are quite strong in those sectors. Unfortunately, we have seen in the last couple of decades, gradual but relentless at the progress of the deregulation and these at the small retail shops, small restaurants, small bars, they're really losing their ground. Small shops are being pushed out by supermarkets. Large-scale restaurant chains are driving out the small restaurants. And indeed, uh, these large uh, supermarket and restaurant chains are often owned by one of the chapels. But you have to get in there because that, uh, there's no else go. And uh, now we finally entered uh, uh, some scenes of uh, the parasite, you know, from the snippets in the, of uh, conversation that uh, you hear in the uh, taxi driver's uh, buffet restaurant that uh, this family goes, uh, that the poor Kim family goes, you learn that, uh, that uh, Kitak, uh, the head of that family, failed in no less than two of these ventures. One was uh, the fried chicken, the other was a uh, uh, Taiwanese Castella. Now this uh, Castella is a very that, uh, strange thing. I, it's supposed to have come from uh, some Portuguese uh, the type of cake, but it uh, came to Asia uh, through Portugal's uh, the, the, the trade and imperial link, uh, the, and, and uh, it's uh, the very popular in Japan and uh, Taiwan, which had the uh, uh, links with uh, Portugal in the old days. And uh, in the mid 2000, uh, 2010s, uh, uh, in 2015, 16, there was a 
huge uh, that craze about uh, this Chinese uh, version of this uh, Castella. And a lot of people got into that business. And uh, in 2017, there was a big uh, scandal because uh, some of uh, the companies that were selling the franchises of this uh, Chinese uh, Castella uh, shops, I mean, there were more, more than one. I mean, there, there were quite a few uh, shops that, uh, that uh, companies that are selling franchise in these shops. I mean, the, many of them went bankrupt and uh, the whole country was in uproar. But, you know, I mean, the, there are so many of these that uh, the, the ephemerally the, the, the popular things that the, the, in the mid 2000s, there's a craze about the Malaysian coffee burns uh, around the, the uh, 2000, uh, mid 2010s, I remember uh, seeing a lot of uh, shops uh, selling Brazilian pound cage. Now there are very few left, you know. So, I mean, people keep getting into this business and failing. And if uh, you fail, not just in one, but two of these businesses, like this guy uh, has, then, yeah, it's uh, not a surprise uh, that you end up at uh, that, uh, you know, semi-basement flat uh, folding uh, the, the pizza boxes. Later in the movie, we learned that uh, this guy, Kunze, the guy who was uh, living uh, secretly in the basement of the rich Park family's uh, mansion, also failed in the, the, the fried chicken, uh, sorry, the Chinese uh, castle venture. So they, the, the, briefly uh, shared uh, solidarity in failing the same thing. And in the, the recently popular drama series uh, called the Squid Game, we learned that uh, this guy Ki-hoon uh, also failed uh, in the fried chicken restaurant. And that was uh, the beginning of his uh, ballooning uh, debt, uh, which kind of uh, drove him into this uh, the, the ridiculous uh, survival game. So behind the descent of uh, the Kim and the uh, Kim family and uh, the family of this guy, Kunze, I forgot his uh, surname, lay the political economy inequality of neoliberal Korea. Basically, neoliberal reforms slow down economic growth and reduce the number of stable and well-paying jobs those reforms also reduced uh, the, had reduced the uh, legal protection of workers from firing while vastly weakening the norm of uh, lifetime employment. So a large cohort of older workers in their late 40s and early 50s, like these guys, were forced into redundancy. And in the absence of a decent welfare state and the disintegration of a uh, traditional extended family, these workers swell the ranks of uh, self-employed. But many of these uh, self-employed people were driven into bankruptcy because uh, neoliberal reforms were weakening the protection of small shops and restaurants that uh, used to be provided. And the result was descent into abject poverty, interspersed with uh, casual employment, like uh, the substitute driving. I mean, the, the, this. Uh, this guy that used to do that in the Squid Game, we also learned that he used to do that. 
or low-skilled uh, piecework like uh, folding pizza boxes as uh, the Kim family does in Parasite. An additional glimpse into the Korean inequality story that you get from Parasite is the role of uh, education in the reproduction of inequality. In the movie, the first entry by the poor Kim family into the rich Park family is provided by the chance hiring of Kyu, the son of the Kim family, as a private tutor for Daehae, the daughter of the Park family. In today's Korea, private tutoring, or at least attending of a hagwon, that is a cramming school, so it's not a personal tutoring, but, uh, but this uh, uh, extracurricular schools that, that, that teach you stuff that, that, that your school that, that don't have time to teach or the, the, the resources to teach. In today's Korea, private tutoring is uh, so important in getting admissions into better universities, and in turn, attendance of better universities vastly increase your chance of uh, getting better paying and more secure jobs, strongly determining your future. Some of you might have uh, seen that the other Korean drama series on Netflix called Sky Castle, which uh, very well depicts uh, the, the, this aspect of uh, Korean education competition. Of course, uh, even in the old days, there were hagwons, there were probably tutors, but they are not as nearly important as they are today because the university entrance exams at the time were more primitive. Yeah? What I mean is that uh, this, uh, you know, in those days, uh, uh, a lot of tests were very simplistic multiple choice tests. And even when it wasn't multiple choice, raw intelligence that enabled you to do well in a few key subjects uh, like Korean, English, and math would get you into good university. So there was relatively little advantage that you could get uh, from private tutoring or hagwon. So during those days, your family background had relatively little impact on your education achievement and thus your subsequent labor market performance. Of course, uh, that is over and above the usual advantage that the kids from richer, better educated families uh, get from well, being well, uh, better fed, uh, uh, having a quieter environment, uh, better education support from the parents. But you know, beyond those obvious things that uh, you know, the, this the, the extra resources spent on tutoring and so on had uh, relatively little impact. So to put it a bit dramatically, in the old Korea, it was possible for you to be born in a poor, poorest peasant family and make it right to the, the very top of the society. You know, Supreme Court judge, CEO of a major corporation, top scientist, neurosurgeon in a big hospital, you name it. Yeah? A lot of people in their the, the 50s, 60s, and 70s who are in high-ranking positions in Korea are from such background. Yeah? However, these days, both uh, school exams and university entrance exams have become much more sophisticated. So you need a lot of uh, coaching in exam taking skills uh, to do well in this test. Moreover, in the name of uh, selecting more rounded individuals, universities take into account extracurricular activities, which give huge advantages to children from wealthier families. Now they can pay for private tutoring that will uh, get uh, their children to 
get a prize in International Math Olympiad. Uh, they can uh, organize uh, the, uh, impressive uh, internships in university labs, uh, the international law firms and investment banks are uh, using the, the social connections. They can provide uh, the, them with, I don't know, opportunities to volunteer in the orphanages or even have them but, uh, sent to the, some uh, poor country in Asia or Africa and uh, spend uh, a few months at uh, the uh, working in the local community, you know. Huh? Well, I mean, I guess uh, this part of uh, the, uh, my point uh, sounds familiar to the, the American audience, where the, the extracurricular activities are considered very important. So now the education system is organized in such a way that family income and wealth have much greater influence on education attainment and that's one's economic position in the long run. In the context of rising inequality, the inequalizing effect of this system is even more magnified. But despite this, uh, the myth of uh, social mobility through a meritocratic education system persists, partly because it uh, had worked so well in the past, so people can't quite just uh, believe that it's uh, not working anymore, but also because uh, those who benefit from it have an interest in sustaining the myth. Yeah? So they can spend enormous amount of resources to help them, help their children to get into good universities and do well uh, there. But that, that, that then that they can defend the, the, the social outcome by saying that, well, the, my kid uh, studied hard and did well in the university. The, what are you talking about? Without mentioning that this was in the significant part uh, the result of uh, the resources they poured in. The increasing importance of family background in social mobility has probably not yet reached the level you see in countries like the US or the UK. But the fact that this has been increasing rapidly in the couple of, uh, last couple of decades has uh, created a strong sense of hopelessness among the young generation. And on top of increasing inequality itself, this sense of hopelessness about the future is what is behind the talk of Hel Joseon, the collapsing fertility, and the increasing popularity of the idea of becoming happier by embracing unhappiness. So let me conclude. As so dramatically uh, and masterfully depicted in Parasite, the problem of inequality, poverty, and falling social mobility, and the resulting sense of frustration and uh, hope, hopelessness is pushing the Korean society to a breaking point. One way to deal with this problem may be to restore some elements of the old system, especially reversing some deregulation measures to protect the weak. And there is a lot of call for that, but the forces of deregulation in this regard are too strong to be reversed, not least because consumers benefit from having large, more efficient retailers and restaurant chains that, that, that serving them. 
So actually, the, 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 the many people want the, 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 to be served by the more efficient, modernized uh, restaurant chains and the, the shops uh, rather than this uh, the traditional kumangkage or uh, the local, the, the second-rate local chicken shops. Yeah? Also, the old uh, protection-based uh, system is unfair on those who do not have the numerical uh, importance or organizational power to acquire protection. So I think the problems of Korea today have to be mainly dealt with by the constructing of a citizenship-based welfare state that befits the country's level of economic development and social conditions. Of course, that, that, uh, I'm not saying that we can just uh, copy the, I don't know, the Finnish or Swedish uh, welfare state and be done with it, you know, that for one thing, we have very high rate of self-employment, so that you need the special measures to cover those people that are usually not covered very well by the standard welfare state measures. And this should be complemented by a reform of the education system in a way that reduces the influence of family income on educational achievements. And strengthening of the welfare state will also have the impact of reducing the achievement gap between students that come from uh, different uh, the family backgrounds. And uh, without these changes, I think Korea runs the danger of becoming a nation that has a brilliant past, but a bleak future. Thank you very much. Thank you, Hajun. That was, as usual, extremely enlightening. Francisco. Herrera. Well, thanks a lot, and, and thanks thanks for the invitation to, to be here, and and thanks to Hajun for this uh, this great talk, and also for giving me an excuse to watch Parasite again, mm -hmm. which I did uh, this week, uh, and, uh, and and really enjoyed seeing it again. It's really just such a great film. Now, um, I cannot contribute much to the conversation about Korea with someone like Hajun. I don't know the country. Uh, almost at all, um, and he is a real expert on it. So what I thought I'd do is just reflect a little bit on some of the numbers that we have about inequality and the realities depicted in the movie um, and the sort of uh, puzzle that they lay out. What uh, Miles Korak and then Alan Kruger called the Great Gatsby Curve, which may be familiar to many of you, it's the relationship across countries between inequality in incomes and in the original form of the curve, it's, uh, it's mobility, intergenerational mobility, which I've replaced here with something quite similar to it, which is just a measure of inequality of opportunity, which we don't need to discuss the details uh, of it, but you can think of it as basically mobility. And if we had mobility, it would look much the same. And, and the point of the curve, you know, the reason it became, I mean, it's just a cross section, it's just a scatter plot that Miles uh, put together, but the reason it became such a big thing and Barack Obama talked about it and so on, is that it kind of puts the lie to the, the, the myth, you know, the idea initially hypothesized by Milton Friedman, I'm not accusing him of lying, he didn't have the data, but Milton Friedman said, well, you know, it's okay if a market system develops a lot of inequality, so long as it has mobility. If everybody has a chance and people can move around, you know, this generation, I'm rich, the next generation, your child is rich, and it's okay. And it postulated or hypothesized that the U.S. was a, a high mobility country, so it didn't matter that the inequality was higher elsewhere. And, of course, what uh, the graph shows is 
that the relationship is not negative, it's positive. Countries with more inequality have more inequality of opportunity or lower mobility, right? And here, you, you know, you've got the, uh, the, the Latin American countries, you've got South Africa, you've got the US at the very top for, uh, for rich countries. Well, where's Korea? Korea is down here a little bit, like Hajun already warned us. Um, its inequality in income is 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 not very high. Um, it's along you know along the, the other rich countries in the OECD, much lower than in the US and so on. And the measure that we have of inequality of opportunity is also not not very high, um, at least at least at that at that time. I thought to myself, well. Um, you know, some time ago, I had to talk about Chile. Here's Chile and the social protests. And this was a, another country that did well, didn't do as well as Korea. No country really has done, I think, perhaps the exception of China coming up, but uh, in terms of development. But Chile was a success story for Latin American standards. And then we had this massive protests, right, which people associated with inequality, even though inequality in incomes had been falling. Um, so part of my part of my argument about the, the Chile, the link between inequality in Chile and social protests was that as a country develops, you know, it becomes harder and harder to sustain those kinds of very high inequality. There is this thing here I called the inequality and development empty zone. Uh, Hajun actually in his talk also talked about countries above $30,000 in GDP per capita. And the point I'm making here, just as a simple uh, description of the data, is that the only country in this rectangle, i.e. with a Gini above 0.4 and an income per capita above 30,000 is actually the US. And even the US wasn't there before, hasn't been there for long, it's moved back up here from below. So the idea is that as a country develops, you know, in the causality here, we're not gonna get into multiple directions of causality, but so, uh, one way of putting this is that successful social contracts that allow institutions to arise that have a country develop uh, into this kind of, of, of levels of, of, of income um, are inconsistent with extreme inequalities such as a Gini above 0.4. And one of the things I was talking about Chile was, well, look, it's approaching this area here. From so I, I wonder to myself, is, is Korea the same? And, and it's not, you know, Korea is already down here. Um, it's already in this more developed area. And, uh, and, and it's not, not, not doing that badly in terms of the numbers. Perhaps some of the growth in inequality that Hajun was talking about isn't here yet. This last data that I have for Korea is 2016, and it's actually quite a lot below Spain and Italy. Uh, while Hajun was talking, I looked on my other screen and the data from the World Bank does confirm that Spain and Italy, as well as Great Britain and so on, are actually slightly above Korea here as well, of course, as, as the US. And yet, you know, uh, if you watch the movie, which I hope you've all done, there is no question <laughs> that it depicts, uh, you know, incredibly stark inequalities. And my favorite sequence for that, my favorite scene for that is actually the one where they managed to uh, escape the house, the park, the Kims managed to escape, escape the park house after the parks come back from the failed uh, picnic or the failed camping trip, rather. Uh, in the middle of this deluge, the middle of this downpour. Um, and what happens is they go home, but the, they're going home, which is maybe two minutes in the movie, is a sequence of going down, going down, down, down. They go down this, 
this uh, street, and then they go down these stairs and those stairs and down a tunnel and the other stairs. And of course, the water is going with them, and then it leads to that to that flood. So it's a marvelous depiction of that kind of inequality. So the puzzle is, you know, how do those inequalities sit with these numbers? Well, one thing is the numbers may be a little bit old, maybe worse now than, than we see. The numbers are incomplete in some ways. But there are a couple of other things, and I want to talk about three, three contrasts just very quickly before asking a question to Hajun and others about China. So the first contrast is a contrast between absolute and relative inequality, which, in fact, I was just uh, talking to some students about yesterday. You know, if you take the Gini coefficient that I showed you, or a tile index, or most other measures of inequality, they're relative. If you multiply everybody's income by 10, inequality doesn't change. But if you multiply the Park's income by 10 and the Kim's income by 10, the absolute gap, the difference goes up massively, which in, and in Korea, with the growth that we've seen over the last 60 years, which Hajun described, those very stark numbers from uh, you know, 1960s to now, there has been a lot of growth. Maybe the Gini has stayed around 30%. It may have gone up a bit, down a bit, but the absolute gaps are enormous. Uh, the, the older generation did not see absolute gaps anywhere near this. And this is a point that others have made before, Martin Ravallion amongst them, about just the, uh, the fact that when we think, oh, relative inequality is not changing in this particular country, uh, well, relative inequality may not be changing, but if there is a lot of growth, absolute differences are changing, and that matters to how people feel. Other uh, kind of contrast between two kinds of inequality I want to mention is uh, in the, 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 the difference between inequality of wealth and what I'm calling inequality of recognition or social treatment. And it struck me, now if you haven't watched the movie and you're going to watch it, uh, this is a spoiler alert, uh, turn down your uh, volume because I'm going to refer to something that happens at the end of the movie. Um, but you know, so there's this gigantic gap between the two families, the two, quote, parasite families, the Kim family and, and, the, and the ones that were originally down there, the, 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 the original uh, maid and her husband. Uh, the gap between them and the Parks is enormous in wealth. But that's not what really upsets them. The reason, and here's the spoiler alert, right? The, the reason Mr. Kim in the end, I mean, the, the, all the bloodshed in the end is, at, for one thing, is amongst the poorer families trying to kill one another off. Uh, but when, when Mr. Kim does eventually just flip out and knives Mr. Park, it is because of Mr. Park's repeated mentions of his smell, which he always does, of course, when he doesn't think Mr. Kim is listening. Um, but what really bugs Mr. Kim more than anything else is this sense that there is, you know, this upper class thinks he smells bad. There is a kind of the smell of the semi-basement, the smell of the public transport. There's a kind of a treat, a, a social kind of inequality that seems to matter more than actually the inequality between the two, the two houses in terms of how it affects people. So that's just a thought that I'd love Hajun's comments on and those of others. Um, my third point is... Um, uh, related to something I've already talked about is the trouble with meritocracy. Um, and it's very much related to the description of educational systems that no longer provide the same educational opportunities to people. So the first thing about meritocracy is it is not the same as equality of opportunity. So if um, the park's children um, have all that tutoring and have access to better schools, 
and then have access to an excellent college and then go for a postgraduate degree in the United States. They keep talking about the United States a lot in that house, right? Um, and then comes back and gets a great job that's like his dad's job. Um, that's not, re- I mean, that is in some sense, maybe meritocracy in the narrow sense that, you know, the best person may have been chosen for the job, but it is not equality of opportunity in that, you know, people from other backgrounds never had a chance of competing for that job. So that distinction is something I feel people often miss. Meritocracy in the simple sense of giving the best people, uh, choosing the best people for the job or for the opportunity is not the same as equality of opportunity when there is a lot of inheritance of privilege and advantage and disadvantage at the other hand uh, between generations, right? Um, And yet, and that's the second bullet under point three, if people feel if people, if the culture is such that you think you are living in a meritocratic world, and I put here, if you have this belief in a just world, which is a reference to a paper 2006 by Benabou and Tiro, um, if, you, if you think you are in that just world, then failure is particularly damaging to self-respect. And uh, I wonder if this you know, the, the suicide statistics in Korea that I didn't know about that Hajun mentioned, you know, his sentence about it's okay not to be okay. They're reminiscent of these deaths of despair work that Deaton and Case have done in the United States, right? And if you take a country like my own, Brazil, where we are convinced we don't live in a meritocracy, we know that the people who are doing well, it's not necessarily because they worked hard, it's probably because they were lucky and they were born uh, in, in a nice place. I was in a Latin American event the other day, and somebody said, you know, that somebody used to say in, in Africa, what country they were, maybe Mexico, I think it was Mexico. And they said, look, there are two times in your life when you can get rich, when you're born and when you marry. Yeah. So if you live in a world like that and you don't do well, you don't blame yourself. It's the system. This is why we're not killing ourselves as much. And the Europeans aren't either compared to the Americans. So I wonder whether, you know, Korea is more, and this is really a question because I don't know anything about Korea really, but it's maybe more like the United States where there is this um, ingrained belief in in meritocracy, which means that you have terrible loss of self-respect if you don't do well. Um, So that's just a thought of that. And and then my last question really that I'll end is, of course, this, tutoring stuff that we see in the movie and which Hajun discussed, you know, it's impossible to see that now and not think of everything we've been reading about Xi Jinping's government's uh, backlash against the tutoring industry in China, which goes along with some sort of backlash against his bigger tycoons. Um, I'm not going to go here and defend uh, Xi Jinping or the Chinese government about many of the things they're doing and many of their backlashes and repressions, I think, are, are, are just awful. Um, but I do think that maybe there is a concern there with avoiding this kind of Korean trajectory um, of entrenching inequality of opportunity again um, by allowing that kind of that kind of thing. So I just wondered about, um, you know, for the discussion about Hajun's thoughts on that, but also other people in the audience. And with that, I'll end and, and thank you very much again for the opportunity to share this. Francisco, thank you so much. Uh, Hajun, would you like to come back for just a brief, just a brief response? Francisco, the, no, the, the, your points are all great. Uh, yeah, first of all, the, the inequality data that I have mainly used uh, from the OECD, so maybe the, their data are different from the World Bank data. So, the, I mean, I'm not 
that uh, a specialist uh, on inequality. So I don't know that uh, how good or bad uh, OECD data is uh, compared to the others. Uh, but uh, since I'm trying to combine it with the, the, the discussions on the, the welfare state, I relied on the OECD data. So the, uh, that's uh, the, the probably where it, uh, the difference comes from. Uh, your yeah, the point about the absolute uh, inequality, I think is uh, very important. I uh, hadn't quite thought about that, so that we should look at it. But uh, I think uh, the, the thing about inequality is that uh, it matters because you think you belong to some place. Yeah? You know, the, the, if uh, someone is angry about inequality in Korea, you try to go to that person and say, oh, the, you know, inequality is a lot higher in Brazil, so you should be happy. Probably you'll be lucky if uh, you're not hit. Yeah? Because uh, the, the basically what matters in inequality more, I mean, I'm not saying that it doesn't matter at all, but that, uh, what, what that, that matters uh, uh, far more in terms of inequality is uh, time series rather than cross-section. So how inequality has changed. And in that, uh, looking at that, those changes is uh, not just about the, the, the Gini coefficient, uh, some objective uh, data, but how people perceive it, how people see the future and how they are predicting the future. And yeah, you already made a very important point that uh, this uh, belief in a just world uh, might uh, actually make uh, people more frustrated. And that definitely is the case in Korea because that, uh, with the flattening of the uh, social hierarchy through Japanese colonialism, the two wars and the uh, land reform and so on, the country has a very strong uh, egalitarian the, the, the spirit. And until recently, there wasn't even cultural difference uh, between people of different classes, because uh, the, even the, many of the rich people are fresh from the countryside, you know, that, that they, of course, I have left it uh, 40 years ago and what have you, but, you know, it's not like uh, in Brazil, not like in England, these the families haven't been rich uh, for the, the centuries, yeah? I mean, I once I uh, was uh, reading a detective story set in the, the kind of uh, aristocratic family in the, 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 the UK. And, uh, you know, this uh, the aristocrat was uh, the looking down upon the, 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 a lesser aristocrat because he thought has to put his own clothes. Yeah? I mean, he doesn't have a servant to put that uh, clothes on him. So, you know, and then the British people often talk about the people who buy furniture and who inherit them. Yeah? I mean, Korea doesn't have that kind of uh, that, uh, social distinction. I'm sure it will develop uh, with that, uh, this continuous uh, the increase in inequality unless we do something. But uh, so far, it hasn't been like that. So the, you, you are very right, Francisco. I mean, you think those guys are the same as I am. And the system is meritocracy. And I have failed. It's uh, awful, yeah? So I think a lot of it is about uh, history, a lot of it is about uh, the changes and maybe even that, 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 that kind of uh, the, how you think uh, it will change uh, in the, the, the coming days. Yeah, finally, the, your point that meritocracy is uh, not uh, the same as uh, the equality of opportunity. Yeah, I think uh, equality of opportunity uh, is quite a slippery, uh, concept uh, to define. I mean, the, the, the minimalist definition will be everyone plays by the same rule. Yeah? So like uh, in a race, uh, no one has a head start. Everyone has to start from the same place. But 
you know, it wouldn't be a fair race if uh, the, some of the contestants are actually disabled. Yeah? This is why we have the Olympics and Paralympics uh, separate. So I think uh, that, 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 that concept has been uh, uh, very often abused, but that, that, that even if you can truly achieve uh, the, the equality opportunity in the sense of uh, the contestants uh, being, I mean, equally capable, I mean, in some broad sense that uh, if uh, they are equally uh, capable in the strict sense, uh, there'll be no winner. I think that uh, your point that uh, even that is not the same as the meritocracy is a very good one. Thank you. Thank you, Hajun. Just to say one thing about the, uh, one thing about Parasite, right, is it shows the importance of, of the family as a machine to reproduce inequality. And we all do it. We all read to our kids. We all try to send them to the best schools, give them the best opportunities. So the reason you need a welfare state proactively involved in providing opportunities for those who don't have it from the family, and that takes a lot of resources. Um, and so I, I'm very much in support of this welfare state that Arjun is talking about, but it's got to be more proactive than it is at the moment in terms of directing opportunities to those who don't have it. Thank you. We are going to continue this debate next week, where we're going to be um, joined by Gabrielle Palmer uh, with a talk, Why the Rich Stay Rich No Matter What. And discussing his talk is going to be Branko Milanovic, a well-known senior scholar at the Stone Center on Socioeconomic Inequality at the City University of New York. So with that, I really want to, on behalf of all the audience, um, far away and, and, and close in the LSC, thank Hajun Chang once again for brilliant talk. And Francisco, we need to have you come back and give your own talk here. Uh, thanks very much for joining us. Thanks for tuning into this lecture recording from the Cutting Edge Issues in Development, Thinking and Practice series for 2021-2022. To hear more, don't forget to subscribe to our channel on Spotify, Apple, Google, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also watch any of these lectures back on our YouTube channel. Just search YouTube for International Development LSE. Stay informed about upcoming events, including the next Cutting Edge Lectures, by searching for events on the LSE Department of International Development website, or just follow us on Twitter at LSE underscore ID for the latest updates.